0: Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's Magnum Opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo, and I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at 2guys to the dark tower You can also email us at 2 guys dark tower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book four of the Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, Come Reap. Chapters 9 and 10. Let's start the show.
1: Following their escape from jail, Roland and friends begin their war on Eldred Jonas, first by destroying the Sitko oil patch via sabotage, and then with a sneak attack, a frontal attack, and a well-set trap to claim victory. But at what price? Rhea the Koos has her own plans. Susan is captured, and the townspeople demand a sacrifice to the Charyu Tree. Thus, we come to the end of Roland's story of Woe, a story that started off like Romeo and Juliet, but ended in tragedy.
0: (laughs) Been waiting to use that joke the whole book.
1: We finally got it in. Jay, we are actually sitting face-to-face for the first time on this show in, what, like nine months? Yeah, it's been a while. I think it was like episode three or four, maybe, that we did in person, so the audio sounds a little different, if the vibe's a little different, if there's more energy, if there's less energy, you, our listener, now knows why.
0: That's right. Maybe we don't get along so well in person. (laughs) We'll we'll find out.
1: We have a lot to talk about. Much happened in these two chapters that serve as the climax of this flashback story that Roland's telling, much of which had been foreshadowed uh, throughout the story. We know... Susan was going to die, and sure enough, Susan died. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about some of the details that would happen, but we'd rather talk about some of the things that interested us most in this section. And the big thing for me was the pink glass, one of the wizard's rainbow that serves a much bigger purpose in these chapters than it had prior to this. We had seen it in the possession of Rhea of the Coos, and there it was more of a tool that she used to see what was happening in the town around her, some of the bad things that were happening. Here, now, it takes on a more central role as it changes hands from Rhea to Jonas to Roland. Right. And throughout all of those exchanges, much happens as it starts to wield its charms on each one of those in very destructive ways and really sort of sets the events in motion that end in the death of Susan. Right.
0: It's almost like the wizard's glass has its own agenda. Like, it's actually taking an active part in what happens. It does so in showing whoever's looking into it what it wants that person to see. And it also does it seemingly by even uh, controlling time, in a sense, we don't know exactly what's going on here, um, but enough things happen in just the right way at just the right time, that Roland can be successful on the one hand against the big coffin hunters and their crew, but completely helpless to save Susan. Yep. And we've also seen like how when Rhea was in possession of the Wizard's Glass, she's a despicable person who hates society and hates the townsfolk whom she is a part of and has exiled herself from in a way. So of course, the glass only shows her the terrible things that the people in town do. It doesn't give her any time showing like, you know, a happy family enjoying a <laughs> meal together or a young a young person helping an old person with <laughs> some heavy, heavy object that they need to move into their home. Look, a nun that needs to be led across the
1: street at the cross light.
0: <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't show her any of those things. It shows her people uh hurting each other and stealing from each other and just being cruel. And that's something that Rhea is the perfect receptacle for. She's all about that part mm-hmm. of society. It's what she expects of people. And so the glass is all too happy to show her that. And that's why I think she's she's the perfect person to possess the wizard's glass for as long as she does because they are very sympathetic in that way.
1: And she thinks that she is the necessary tool for the glass. So she tells the big coffin hunters, you can't kill me because I need to go with you to the good man to deliver the glass. Mm -hmm. She feels like she's essential to it. And then Jonas starts to think and whether or not he thinks this on his own or it's the glass causing it, that, hey, we don't really need this lady, we really just need the glass. And the glass is irreplaceable. And he and other characters say, this is what we need to return to the good man. Whether or not we make it back, whether or not the Sitco trailers make it back with the oil, whether or not we get all the horses from the drop, the most important thing, the thing that's irreplaceable, is this glass. And once Jonas realizes that, he realizes, hey, maybe we don't need Rhea the Coos anymore. And that's when he absconds with the glass and gets it in his possession and sends Rhea on her way.
0: In a sense, Jonas is exactly correct. They don't need Rhea. The glass doesn't need Rhea. The glass is the important thing. But the reasons or why he, Jonas comes to this conclusion is all wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, because it turns out that the glass doesn't need Jonas either. Yeah. And in fact, the he, the glass is right. It is irreplaceable, but it's just going to change hands once again, yeah. this time to Roland. And that's where we see what we really think is the purpose of the glass and which got us thinking this question is the glass running its own agenda. Is it controlling events? Because what ends up happening is that it provides this vision to Roland that we'll talk a little bit more in depth about. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also sets up the entire chain of events where it distorts time. So that Roland thinks that Susan is safe and can get and save her when in fact that's not going to be able to happen.
0: Yeah. And there's, there seems to be this built-in malevolence or evil mm. to the glass. So if it does have its own agenda, I think it still might be restricted in some ways. We've heard Roland talk about Ka and how Ka is in a way of talking about destiny. It's more than that, but in a sense, it's a path that he must follow. It made me wonder, and Sean, you were wondering this too, is the power of the wizard's glass part of Ka? Is it outside of Ka? Or is it influenced by Ka in some way? And as we were thinking about this earlier, I came up with the analogy, so original, I think, <laughs> of like the the arc of a rainbow. And if the arc of the rainbow is the path of Ka, the wizard's glass has to follow the lane that its color, the pink one, has, it needs to be, because pink's part of the rainbow, right?
1: Pretty no, sure. No, but that's okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: Roy G. Biv, man. There's no pink in there.
0: <laughs> yes, Roy G. Biv, right. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the pink lane on the rainbow, uh, it needs to stay in that lane. And if it controls you in some way, if you are the the possessor of, of the the pink wizard's glass, it's going to do what it needs to do to keep you on that path, to keep you in that pink lane. But it's not going to do it in a way that helps you or that is fun or that is pleasurable it's going to do it in a way that hurts you that mm. causes you both physical and mental pain and i think that just like ka might be a, a more ambivalent if not helpful way of keeping you on that path the glass says well i need to keep you on the same path because i'm part of ka too but i'm going to do it i'm going to keep you on that that narrow path by hurting you and doing it, if possible, the most painful way possible.
1: Right. So we see Rhea, who is a cruel person and who takes pleasure in the cruelty that others do, the ball uses that to show her those things, and then sucks the life out of her. Yeah. With Jonas, it's this question of, where should I be? What should I do? What's my role? Mm -hmm. And it draws on that to to move him around. And then ultimately, obviously with Roland, it's going to give him a vision of the tower and set him on that path while at the same time, destroying everything that he loves and cares about. To make sure he stays on that To path. make sure he goes to it, yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the Wizard's Glass could have given Roland the information he needed to keep Susan safe. Yep. But it also thought, uh, again, I'm, I'm personifying it a bit here, but if it has agency, if the Glass itself has agency here, then its its goal is to get Roland on the path and keep Roland on the path, the path to the dark tower. Yep. This is where we discover that this is probably the genesis of Roland's obsession with the tower. And to keep Roland on that path, Roland can't be a married man. Roland can't be a father. He can't, he can't live happily ever after in a cottage and um with a, a wife and family who make him immensely happy and fulfilled in his life, that man isn't going to go on a relentless pursuit of the Dark Tower. So what does the glass do? It kills the (laughs) woman he's about to marry who is currently pregnant with his unborn child. That ought to set him straight.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. So you said that you didn't want to personify or give agency necessarily to the ball itself but it does make me wonder as somebody who has not read any further where what this means this is the glass controlling it or is there some other thing that is providing it so when we were in the drawing of the three we talked about the magic that existed in that book and Mm -hmm. where did these doors come from on the beach who put them there for roland to find was it ka was it an actual person was it just sort of the magic of destiny? Uh here I have the same sort of questions. What's providing this information to Roland? Is it Ka? Is it the glass itself? Is it the wizard of the wizard's glass that's mentioned? We don't know. And it's all just supposition, but yeah, it does make me wonder like obviously there's somebody or something or someone or some force that wants Roland to go on this quest.
0: Yeah, and in in, uh, in- Uh, the drawing of the three, when Roland and the man in black are finally having their palaver, Roland says, are you going to give me the power to draw these, these people and the man in black in one of his few clear answers says, I can't give you that power. That power is already in you. If I were to give you any more power, there would be no stopping you. Hmm. So maybe at that time in Roland's life, at that point, Something else already had given him that power. We don't know what it is. We didn't know that that happened. Maybe he was born with these powers, if you will. But maybe something happens between the 14-year-old Roland that we meet in the story about Susan Delgado and the Roland of the gunslinger. Maybe something happens in there. Maybe it's Roland's connection to the pink grapefruit. It could be. As opposed to the yellow grapefruit. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, But it was interesting for us to see this ball that we had a very clear idea of of what its power was change in these last two chapters fairly extensively. Yes. That it went from something that we thought was giving us real-time look-in on different parts of town to something that is able to influence events in some way or at least provide information that's different than what might actually be occurring, whether that be simultaneously in the future, um sort of obfuscated in some way so that it's not giving the actual information directly to the uh the person who's looking into it. And it made Jay, you think at some point whether or not it had this larger effect because this is also the first time that we hear the boys or see them actually experience the slippage in time. Right. When they're in the canyon after they've trapped uh Latigo's men into the thinny, all of a sudden they've sort of lost track of time and they look up and it's dark out when it was midday earlier. And there's this shift in time that they both that they all three mention.
0: And they, they feel it. It yeah. it's not like if it hadn't been mentioned directly, I might have just chalked it up to like, well, they're actually in very close proximity to the thinny.
1: Right. And, and they've the thinnie, been mesmerized by it in some way. Yeah. Right?
0: They they've either been hypnotized and lost track of time or the thinny itself is a source of the skewing of time. But what they feel as they finish that moment in their their day, as they, they, the trap closes on Latigo's men, then there's this, I don't remember the exact wording of the line, but it says like, it's like time reshuffled back into place. Mm-hmm. And that to me meant that time was being maybe held still in one place and allowed to proceed in another, and now they were resynced and brought back into uh, conjunction. It, right. Yeah. And so and in in doing so, that's what keeps them from having enough time to get back to Mages and try to save Susan. Like Roland doesn't even try. He grabs he, knows. <laughs> he, he grabs the uh the, the pink grapefruit again The wizard's glass and looks into it to see if his, if I guess if his, what he suspects has happened, has happened. And he is shown the entire vision of Susan's death. That's how he knows that it happened. And that's how they know that they should just flee. Yes. But I can't help but wonder did the wizard's glass cause this wrinkle in time?
1: Ooh.
0: Or really impressed you with that one.
1: <laughs> Madeline Le Engel uh, reference. Very nice. Yeah.
0: Did the glass cause the wrinkle in time? Or was it just taking advantage of the fact that the same thing that's affecting everything? The fact that the tower itself is weakening, which has a ripple effect on time as we know it. It has a, a ripple effect on geography, it has a ripple effect on direction. Why wouldn't it also be affecting time in general? And is that maybe the source of the the power in the wizard glass is like if the tower were still standing firm, like it was the day that it was formed and it wasn't weakening, could the wizard's glass exist? Mm. Would it have any power? Would it have any strength? I mean, was that part of its creation? I don't know. I'm totally speculating here. (laughs) But so I guess the question comes back to how much agency does the wizard's glass have here? is it actually affecting the perception of time for Roland and his two friends to the point where it is actually manipulating their ability to do things without having possession over their uh, their faculties because they're mentally connected to the ball? Or did it just get lucky right. in that? Like, oh, well, if Roland hadn't been mesmerized by the Finney, they would have just hightailed it right back to maddes and shot up that whole town too in an attempt to get susan before they set the fire yep and we'll never know that but i think it's an interesting question
1: yep i'm sure we'll find out more because the pink glass ends up in the boy's possession mm-hmm. and they're heading back to gilead at the end of this chapter so in fact they also say that the ball is irreplaceable and they need to get this back to their fathers and in fact they wouldn't have even attacked the sitco tankers, except for the fact that we can't let these thieves get away with it, is what I think they say. Yeah. They're like they feel like honor bound as gunslingers to so like we we really need to get this grapefruit back, but let's shoot our way through this first and then we'll get the grapefruit back. But that's really the most important mission that they feel they have. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine we'll probably see or at least hear more of the pink grapefruit in pages to come. That is moderately fascinating. <laughs> Moder- moderately fascinating. Of course, it was a flashback, and we're like a thousand years in the future now, so who knows what happened. Exactly. Maybe the, it crumbles along the way. The world has moved on since. Um Really, the key portion of the wizard's glass is Roland's vision, which takes up a nice section in the middle here. Yeah. Um
0: This feels really important.
1: It feels really important. I will admit, I think it feels maybe more important to you as somebody who's read the books before mm-hmm. than it did to me. I could sense that there was importance here, and I... Marked up a lot of things and said, oh, I wonder what this is. And I wonder what thi- this is. But uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be more to come on this vision. But you had mentioned earlier, it really is the inspiration for the whole quest to the tower. When yeah. after that vision, Roland gets out of it and he needs the help of a knock on the head from one of his quartet to, to break the the spell of the, the thing. He comes out and he's like... We've got a mission, boys. We're going back to Gilead, but we're not going to spend a lot of time there Mm -hmm. because we're going to find this tower thing. Something that I think before this, they might have thought was just a fable, or at least if it was real, not something of the most epic importance that Roland seems to place on it now.
0: Yes. I always had the impression that, and we learn a little bit about this in, in, in this book, that all of the gunslingers, everybody who has had that title. The one thing that unified all of them was this idea of the tower. But I never got the impression that they occasionally formed posse's and said, "Let's go do a (laughs) pilgrimage," or "Let's go see what's happening there," or "Things aren't right in the world. Let's go see if the tower will give us information about that." It just seems symbolic, Mm. as though it it's a metaphor for something, not a real thing in a real place. But just like when Eddie has his visions in Drawing of the Three. Or is it in wastelands? Wastelands. It is in wastelands, right? When he becomes a, a tower junkie, yeah, he has his own visions that Roland's vision in the glass are very similar to. And this is when Roland comes to know that the tower is a real thing in a real place, and he gets a sense of the geography, and he gets a sense of where in the world it might be. It not thunderclap? So, something about thunderclap. <laughs> And and I think Roland seems to forget that, just like yes. like Rhea says a couple of times, and Roland says, "I saw and knew everything, but now that I have woken, just like waking from a dream, you don't remember everything." No. So I think Roland forgets thunderclap. He 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 doesn't mention that word again. But this is clearly where Roland, where the genesis of Roland's obsession for the pursuit of the tower starts. Before this, he was a newly formed gunslinger who was willing to give up everything so that he could settle down with Susan. And now he, and forever, will be a man with a singular obsession, and that is the pursuit of the Tower. And even his friends don't really recognize him after this vision happens to him. And I don't know that they even understand it yet. It's been too little time. But in Roland's experience, an immense amount of time has passed. He's, He's experienced all the things that the the wizard's glass has shown him.
1: And I don't want to go too deep into analysis of this because I think we'll get into moderately fascinating territory about some of what he sees in the vision mm-hmm. um, that I'm afraid, if I know too much about, may spoil some of the stuff that happens in, in future books. But we do see, in addition to Mages, we see him encounter his current katet, at least the Lady of Shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees a bu- Billy Bumbler at some point. He sees Brown, the farmer on the edge of the desert that we met way back in book one in The Gunslinger.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, All this cool stuff that makes me think, much like Eddie's vision, these aren't just necessarily random thoughts, but actual premonitions that may, in fact, come true or have come true or will come true. Um, The magic in Roland's world seems fairly consistent. There might be some trickster... Action to it, like we've seen with Pink Glass, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's reliable. It's reliable information. It's it's the news. Mm-hmm. It's not fake news. No,
0: where'd you hear that? New York Times? Nah, it was a magic ball.
1: It was a magic ball. <laughs> I get all my good information <laughs> from that.
0: Yeah, uh, like when Roland shares a bit of his vision, there's a lot that gets packed into like a single paragraph. It's when he realizes that the tower is crumbling. And if it falls, everything we know will be swept away and there'll be chaos beyond our imagining. And that's when he realizes before he has any bad news about Susan, he's already made his decision. Mm -hmm. He's already said, I need to set her aside. I need to set my life aside for this quest. So in a sense, the wizard's glass has achieved its goal.
1: Prior to anything else. Prior Prior to even Susan being killed.
0: Right but the wizard's glass is malevolent
1: it still shows him
0: <laughs> and it still makes it still gives roland enough or captures his mind long enough so that he can't help susan and it gets what it wants from him it gets his pain and it benefits from that yes
1: and there's a voice that's telling him all this like it's it's not just the vision but he hears a voice and at first he thinks it's his voice mm-hmm. and he, he thinks it's familiar and by the end he, he hears it say You will kill everything and everyone you love, and still the tower will be pent-shut against you.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's sort of interesting that he's telling this story now to Jake and Eddie and Susanna, like, Hey, I got this vision that seems pretty reliable that tells me I'm going to kill and lose everyone who's close to me. And in fact, if you know Cuthbert's dead and Elaine's dead, oh, you guys are traveling with me.
0: Sorry. (laughs) And it's not like Eddie hasn't had multiple (laughs) suspicious moments with Ron, like, uh, are you going to do this to us? And it's not like he hasn't actually already killed Jake.
1: Yes, at least, yes, he's killed Jake once. Or let him die if we want to get... Sure, if you want to split that hair. But I think as you just said a moment ago,
0: this is reliable information in a way.
1: And the voice is... Unclear to us. Like I said, at first he says he almost recognizes a voice so much like his own that it might be his subconscious. And then we get this interesting, now suddenly he knows that voice. And it's when the voice says, look ahead, Roland, see your destiny. It is the voice of the turtle. Mm. Who is the turtle? What is the turtle? We have not actually met an actual turtle yet. We've heard of a turtle in the mythology sort of zodiac of mid-world right with the bear and the hare and the horse and the fish yeah there's a turtle and we've seen a turtle in jake's vision Mm -hmm. um
0: this changes things a little bit for us like up to this point we've heard of a turtle as a a symbol as like a a zodiac sign we know that the turtle is one of the guardians of the beings And it happens to be the one that is at the opposite end of the beam that Shardik Mm -hmm. is at. So, in a sense, we have this idea that the Great Old Ones created the beams. Maybe they built the the machinery that generates the force of the beam. And those beams do something. They crisscross at the location of the tower is what Roland tells us. And then they built guardians for these beams in the form of the Zodiac. Right. And I'm using the word zodiac. The book doesn't call them zodiac, no, but, but
1: it's a pretty fair comparison. Yeah. Twelve,
0: you know. So it's like, okay, the one here, the, the let's make this one the location of the bear, and we'll we'll build a big robot Shardik. And at the other end, I assume there's a giant robot turtle. And you know, we made jokes about that with Godzilla and and stuff. But okay, great. These are physical manifestations of mythology, if you will. Yep. But now if looking into the wizard's glass you hear the voice of the turtle does that mean that there's actually something mystical or elemental about these guardians about these zodiac symbols is there something more to this and i have to wonder like how does this change our view of, of roland's mm. world because just like this there are echoes upon echoes and layers upon layers here did the Great Old Ones build their machinery as an echo of what was already there, of what already existed perhaps in a mystical or magical way, and they added a layer of science and physicality to things. And now that's what's breaking down, and because of how advanced their science was, it's actually having a detrimental effect on the magic, and by pulling everything down.
1: Yeah, I think early on, we didn't know if, King, especially when he was writing this book 26 years later from the first book, whether or not he had some big plan for all of this stuff, and it does seem like he has thought a lot of that out, or at least had created something earlier in such a way that he could add these layers to it and have this deeper meaning and have it all make sense.
0: Mm -hmm. I doubt he had this sorted out when he was 19 years old, starting his first draft of The Gunslinger, but...
1: No, but... He was at least a smart enough writer to leave himself enough room to make it happen.
0: Right. There's another thing that jumped out at me in this section of the book. When Roland first comes out of his trance from his first contact with the wizard's glass, it has transformed him Hmm. in a way. And King goes to great lengths to talk about how Roland's eyes have become ancient. And because his eyes were the way that the, the wizard's glass connected with him, when he was connected to it, his eyes disappeared and they were replaced with pink light. Yeah. And so when he disconnected, his eyes were what bore the brunt of that, that affect. And the line in the book is, Above his young and unlined cheeks, below his young and unlined brow, were the ancient killer's eyes that Eddie Dean would first glimpse in the mirror of an airliner's bathroom. But now they swam with childish tears. And I thought that it was really cool. And really powerful how Roland's eyes are are ancient now. And they're ancient despite his youth. And his time in the wizard's glass has aged him significantly. It's influenced him and crystallized him into an eternal, relentless machine of pursuit and death. And I thought that it was also kind of like almost biblical, where his exposure to the vision in the glass is much like Moses' exposure to God. and. You know, God warns Moses, if you look upon me, you will be destroyed. So look at this burning bush. (laughs) And that'll have some really bad impact on you too, but at least you won't be destroyed by it.
1: Here, a burning bush. That's not at all unusual. (laughs) (laughs) This is further evidence that Roland doesn't remember a lot of this vision. Yeah. Because when he has his vision at the palaver with the man in black in book one, a lot of that seems new and just sort of blows his mind when, in fact, in some ways it would be a very similar type of thing as the pink glass. I mm-hmm. wouldn't think it would be that much. I also think it's interesting that Roland doesn't remember the extent of this vision in the immediate aftermath, but when he's telling the story to Jake and Susanna and Eddie, he does. He remembers, he remembers the details. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Um, and part of it is because some of this stuff has happened to him, and part of it is because he knows more now he, you know, now that he's seen the, the, the vision with the man in black, he's starting to put all of this together and he's able to figure it out. Um, this also answers the yeah. question we had last episode, which was when Eddie asks, how do you know all the corners of this story? Yeah. And it's because he's been told it by, by the wizard's glass.
0: Right. He he gets like the, the matrix
1: Kung Fu download
0: of, right. of the entire story. Sure. Um, I, I think like, he also remembers it now because of the stimulus of the thinny in Topeka, because just like uh, a certain smell or a certain sound or even a, a song could give you an Im- it could open up an immense amount of memories that are connected to that thing. <laughs> Clearly, you know, Roland wanders through Topeka and he's experiencing a thinny for the first time in a while, and not only. Does the general memory of what happened in mages come back, but everything comes back. And that's why it takes him like three days to get around to just saying, okay, here's the story. I think he was he was kind of downloading the information all over again because his brain was, was opening up all the doors that he had shut against it.
1: So you're basically comparing Stephen King's Thinny or Roland's Thinny to Proust's Madelines and the Remembrance of Things Past. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're basically the same. Ooh. Madelines. It, 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 that's funny. I had a professor who told me that everyone should take a year off of their life and just read Remembrance of Things Past by Proust. We're not going to do that. We're going to do the Dark <laughs> Tower instead. So, hope you guys enjoy. <laughs> Unless you're clamoring for a, uh, a Proust uh, podcast, let us know. You can find us at Two guys Darktower at gmail.com. So we get this immense weight of this vision on Roland that's obviously impacted him and his life forever. For, for forever, right? Yeah. I mean the rest of the story is this because of this moment when he sees his destiny to, to seek the tower.
0: Or his density.
1: Mm. More back to the future reference. <laughs> always good. Always, always good. Um this elevates Roland in some ways, right? Yes. I mean, we're getting the fact, the idea that of all the people who could have looked at the glass, Rhea, Jonas, I mean, Elaine and Cuthbert are left alone with it, they could potentially, it's Roland that the glass is chosen. Yes. It's Roland who is given this vision. Roland is obviously our hero. I mean, he being imbued with this vision, it obviously elevates him in some ways. But that's not the only way that we've seen him elevated in this section. Um, there's other hints mm-hmm. throughout the section that gives us that. Um, one of the big one is as he's about to kill Jonas, Jonas totally freaks out because he sees this young kid who's now destroyed all of you know his. Massive amount of people he's got, and now he sees him charging towards him, and he yells, "It's Arthur Eld himself come to take me!" As if he has this vision, of the king of old, you know, reaching yeah. out with guns ablazing after him. And sure enough, Roland does shoot down Jonas.
0: Yeah, he's not being ridden down by a fourteen-year-old a boy with a gun in his hand. He's being ridden down by the king of kings kind yes. of thing. Actually, and we not, know, not the king of kings, but
1: he's not Jesus. He's yeah. just he's just Arthur. <laughs> and we know that Roland's family traces their lineage back to Arthur Eld. Right. And Jonas does not know that. Jonas does not know this is Roland. Jonas thinks this is Will Dearborn. Still, he he says it's that damn Dearborn kid. Um. So he he does not know of that connection, but yet he sees it. And we know that he is in fact a descendant of Eld. So that's one way in which we've seen him elevated.
0: Yeah. There apparently there is. Objective evidence that there is something more to Roland than than what you can observe at at any given moment. It's like when when Roland is at his most powerful, when he's at the the peak of his destructive power, and and he's at the top of his form as a gunslinger. That's when you can see like the the lineage come through. He is the once and future Roland, right? <laughs> and 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 yeah, I mean like throughout the books. Not just this one, but in all in, in the first three books before this, King is always elevating Roland. He's saying, you know, well, he, he has the best, you know, his vision's better than everybody. He can draw a gun faster than anybody, even his fellow gunslingers. He has the best guns and all that. And he's stubborn and determined, and he's more capable of surviving things. To pull a line from the movie that you don't like to talk about, he's stronger than most, Right. Which isn't I, in the books.
1: I don't. I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Never mind.
0: <laughs> um, but like, we are we are constantly reminded that he's not just the best gunslinger, and he's not just the last gunslinger, but he's the last scion of Arthur Elt, mm. and that seems important to his character. That seems important to the mythology of this world. It seems important to the mythology of this story, and the fact that Roland is this descendant of this great king that started all of this and and it's not just he's like a mythological king that's set up as an ideal for others to follow and emulate seems like he was a real person in some way shape or form and passed on his his lineage down to roland and the fact that when he's roaring at you at the moment of your death when he has chosen to to end you that you see the echo of his ancestor. I think that's all the evidence we need to know that he really is of the line of Eld.
1: And then during the vision, we get further evidence. So there's this... We we actually see this happen twice. During the vision, Roland shouts out, it will not stand. This is after he's been revealed that the tower is his destiny. Right. And Roland, you know, freaks out and, and starts to yell, it will not stand. When I come here in my body, it will not stand. I swear on my father's name, it will not stand. And we hear this from Roland's perspective as he's in the vision. But we also see it He's from, actually saying He's actually saying it because yeah. they hear him actually say, no, it will not stand as their leader is sort of holding on to this ball and being sucked into it. Um, in fact, they hear him say it in a voice that made goose flesh ripple the skin of the other two boys. That was not Roland's voice at all, at least not as he was now. That was the voice of a man. So Roland has had his Peter Brady moment here, as Uh. he's gone from a 14-year-old with a cracking voice to that of a man. But it's not only that, Jay. No, Elaine said much later, that was the voice of a king. So Elaine and Cuthbert realize as well that the voice that Roland uses is the voice of the king.
0: Yeah, they're, they're basically having a similar realization that Jonas had in the moment before he died that this person who they grew up with and learned to be a gunslinger at his side is not a 14-year-old boy or certainly not any average 14-year-old boy this is this is a king this is somebody who despite his youth despite his lack of world experience he is a, a true leader among men and it's apparent here when he is clutching this extremely powerful magical wizard's glass and he is being shown a vision that would probably crush most people's Mm. psyche and he is defying it he's saying no 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 you don't understand who you're dealing with here i will not allow this and that's a really really powerful moment and it's probably the moment that that cements Roland on, in his obsession, right? Mm-hmm. It is when he realizes you can't keep me from this and you can't distract me from this. And meanwhile... And I'm
1: him. willing to sacrifice everything for this. Friends, yes. family, loved ones.
0: And in a way, though, he's being manipulated to do exactly what the Wizard's Glass wants, right? Yes. Or what Ka wants or what the, the Path of the Rainbow analogy wants, right? It. He's saying, you can't keep me from this and the the agency entity whatever is behind the wizard's glass is probably just chuckling in the corner saying, okay, I won't stop you. Right. You do that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All part of my plan. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a very similar dynamic uh, when Roland earned his guns, when he bested court. Mm -hmm. They, Elaine and Cuthbert immediately saw a change in him and started to defer to him. Like he was now a gunslayer. Um, and that was a, a a important moment as they sort of like listened to him and he told them what to do and what was going to happen. And they sort of deferred to him. But once they got to Magus, it seemed like even though Roland was the leader, they were more on a peer-to-peer basis. Yes. They were still close friends. They still had the same experiences. But now, as Elaine and Cuthbert have now really taken their test to become gunslingers... Through the fire and fury that was the, they went the, to a, the fight. I mean, they they came in guns blazing. They've killed men. They they've done that.
0: The crucible that they needed to pass through was a much more real world setting yeah. than what Roland had to do.
1: So when they took the jump to gunslinger, Roland then took another higher jump. Yep. So like they were never at a time when they were peers because now he's gone beyond being a gunslinger to become a king or even a greater than. Gunslinger of sorts, and it reminded me a little bit of uh, Shakespeare, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, when Prince Hal, who has to sort of discard his friends as he's moved on to become king, and he, Falstaff has to go away and his other friends because he's now a king, and a king is very different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You cannot be a peer with a king, right? By definition, that's impossible. And it seems like here, Elaine and Cuthbert have realized it that their friends been elevated in some way. So, Jay, we come to that point where we have the ending of a story. I know this isn't the end of the book, mm-hmm. but it is the end of the story that Roland is telling to Jake, Susanna,
2: and Eddie. And Eddie. And Oi. Oi. Don't forget Oi.
1: I don't think Oi took much away from this story.
2: I think Oi is more present than you give him credit for. <laughs>
1: yes. And again, we ask. Does King know how to end a story? So we've read approximately 450 to 500 pages of Roland and his content in mages. Yep. And it's been an entertaining story. I have enjoyed it immensely as I see this go on. Yeah. But it's gone on for 450 to 500 pages. Yeah, and even
0: you. as I complained earlier that I was getting a little bored at, at one one point, shortly after I got past that... It really picked up for me, yeah, so there there was really no time that I wasn't enjoying myself in this book.
1: Well, when it picked up for you, it started a quick downhill descent as things started coming at us fast and furious. I know that these were only two chapters, but it still ended up being ninety pages, but mm-hmm. there was so much packed into these pages, and some of it seemed to me at least to be a little bit anticlimactic after almost five hundred pages as we get the big coffin hunters who've been set up as the big bad in this book for all these pages. And we made a key point of pointing out, Hey, there's three of them and yep. there's three gunslingers and they're going to have a face off and it's going to be awesome. And they just sort of roll in and without Jonas even lifting up his gun, bam, bam, he and DePape are shot down, yep. um, you know, through Cuthbert's subterfuge and and sneaky, they take out a bunch with the slingshot, the, the slingshot um, which made me wonder, should Cuthbert, instead of being a gunslinger, be a slingslinger? That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so it all happened so quick, and then Susan's dead, and it just sort of happened boom, 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 boom. And I wondered, like, why did this happen so fast? Is, this, is there a reason that this happened so fast? Is it just I thought it happened fast because I was reading it and so in tune to it? Is it because it was, in fact, anticlimactic in some way? Or did King not stick the landing here?
0: It felt abrupt. At the very least, it felt abrupt. Um, Moving away from the discussion of the ending itself for a moment, I did feel like the challenge or the implied challenge of the big coffin hunters, the three against three, the, the, the truly dangerous, the truly talented gunslingers, in you know unofficial gunslingers facing off against the actual gunslingers, that promise denied us uh did leave me feel like something was left out of the story that like if nothing else a missed opportunity in the narrative or something, but I wanted an opportunity for Roland to win the day because he's so good,
2: mm.
0: not just because he was I mean. Riding down Jonas, and you know, with guns ablazing already, and then basically Jonas kind of shitting his pants in fear and hesitating and being killed at that moment. It's not the way I thought he was going to go out. No. And I thought that this was going to be one of those things where it's like Jonas is deadly fast, like faster than anybody's ever seen before, except Roland. It had to be that. It had to be one of those things where it's so close, but Only Roland could have won that that contest. And maybe King was just trying to avoid being a little too cliched, you know, another like shootout at at high noon kind of thing. Like we just, this, it could have so easily gone in that direction. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show what gunslingers are like when they're working in groups and they're actually on a mission. And so it was good. It was fun. Yeah. But it wasn't anything like what I would have expected from this construct of characters. Uh, as far as sticking the landing, the whole end of Susan's life, her sacrificial bonfire burning, that was so brief mm. and so uh, I don't, I'm at a loss for words. It's so short. <laughs> but my memory of reading this book the first time years ago, it feels like that it was longer. Like mm. like King spent more time on it there. Not, and it wasn't just like the the road into town and everybody working themselves up into the frenzy it, like my memory of that is bigger than what I just read, and I don't know what happened did yeah. Did I just fill that in over the years, like, oh, this must have happened, and that must have happened. More must have happened than what King wrote, and it didn't
1: and nothing seemed missing. I don't want to imply that there was anything missing, but it just did seem like for someone who is detailed. A lot of what has happened, yeah. things, and and I think the other piece was that Roland isn't there. So while it's still heartbreaking for him and horrible, he's still seeing it through a vision without any sound.
0: So it's like he's watching it through a telescope or something.
1: Yes, it does, and it obviously crushes him, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have that impact that you think a scene like that might have had.
0: Yeah, and it's like we spent 500 pages getting to this point to just have the last bit of the story given to us in bullets,
1: bullet points. We got Game of Thrones done this.
0: Oh, man.
1: (laughs) Maybe King uh, outsourced these chapters to somebody else. (laughs) Hey, Benioff, can you finish this up for me? Weiss and Benioff uh, wrote the last two chapters of this story. Oh. it does give us this arc. So I'll give a charitable view. Roland is telling this story. Mm-hmm. Roland might not want to linger on this too much because it is so heartbreaking. And as he's telling this story, he might just sort of want to get to the, I want to get past this because this is the bad part. So I'm just going to tell it really fast, guys. I hope you understand. Yeah. Um, we are shown how much this really does destroy Roland. We're left at the end of this Chapter this section of the book, with Elaine and Cuthbert riding off with Roland, and at this time, Roland is finally woken up after days in and out of a coma, yeah, basically, um but Roland is still holding the ball that is no longer lit for him, at least not that they can see who knows what happens when they fall asleep. but they say the thing which rode west with them toward Gilead was not Roland or even a ghost of Roland. Like the moon at the close of its cycle, Roland had gone.
2: yeah, you know, we're
1: not even left with the Roland that we started out with. It was pretty devastating. There was even the moment when uh, Elaine and
0: Cuthbert were worried that Roland was going to starve to death because he was just catatonic, yeah, and they they were going to perhaps have to force feed his <laughs> his unconscious body in some way,
1: oh. Well, um, ra- on that note, <laughs> rather than end on the depressing note of the Roland that started the story being no longer with us, let's move on to fun stuff. And there is actually, despite the downer of a section that this was, Susan dying, Roland falling apart, we're presaged with the fact that Elaine is going to bitterly regret the fact that he doesn't destroy the wizard's glass when he had the chance, uh, foreshadowing there. Um, despite all of the bad things that happen, there is some good and fun that we can get out of this, and we're going to present it to you via Fun Stuff. Oh, oh. And our first way that we'll start Fun Stuff is with another great review on iTunes, Jay. Awesome. So the review is, Excellent. Glad to find something to listen to when I'm on the go. This podcast also digs deep into a book that I love and can at times help me think about things I never noticed or thought about on my first few trips to the tower. That sounds good.
0: Yeah. And Sean, I think you buried the lead. My favorite part of this review is the name of the reviewer. Why, let's take a look.
1: It looks like this review is by Honky Mafu. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Honky Mafu. Hunky Mafu also says in his or her review, it's also fun to hear the hosts pronounce characters' names differently than I would. <laughs>
0: yeah, imagine that. <laughs> We're getting feedback all the time about
1: Well, Hunky Mafu, I know you like the pronunciation of Roland, but it really is Roland. <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much, uh, Hunky Mafu, for that great review and a reminder to others that we will potentially call you out on a future episode if you were to review us on iTunes, um, preferably at the five-star level, not the one-star level. But yep. if you read us at the if if you rank us at the one-star level coming in on episode twenty-six. We'll read that too, just because you're obviously a devoted hate watcher or hate listener of us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and there's some good news from the iTunes perspective. It seems that Apple has updated the app in iOS 11, and it is now quite a bit easier to find the place to leave a review. So if you have your iPhone or iPad handy and you're listening to our show, it's just a couple of taps away to a point where you can... Leave
1: a review sale. So. And the bars that set high with the Honky Mafu as the username, so. Yeah. So well, let,
0: let's see how, how you keep coming up with great new ones there.
1: All right. So just to follow up on what Honky Mafu said, uh, when Shimi finally finds out that the three boys that he knew had been traveling under assumed names, he, he learns that their names are Roland and Elaine and Cuthbert. Except Roland or Shimi says, Key Have we been pronouncing it wrong, or is it just the way that Chimi's hearing it? Yeah,
0: that that really made me question how I've been saying Cuthbert all this time. Like, somebody else must have said his real name is Cuthbert. And Chimi just (laughs) laughed his ass off about that. Like, Cuthbert? Your name's Cuthbert?
1: uh, So if we've been saying that wrong, too, sorry. Yeah. So Roland, Cuthbert. And Alan is probably what their names (laughs) are. Alan, not Elaine. Do you have fun stuff,
0: Jay? I do. Um, In Chapter 10, we get a description of a fat man with clouds of red hair, a bulldog mouth, and a mean glare in his eye. So I started wondering, I bet some folks in town call him Mr. 101. Perhaps they even call him... Mr. Uh (laughs) Heatmiser, I bet things melt in his clutch. (laughs) That guy is just too Too much. much. (laughs) Very nice,
1: (laughs) very nice. So we joked earlier that Eddie was never able to land a catchphrase when he was destroying Blaine. Yeah, he just ruined it. He they went on too long, or he used two or three of them. But Roland, he's got a catchphrase that's meant to last when he and his fellow gunslingers are about to lay into the. The troops. He draws his gun and tells the the boys, "Reapings come." That's right. That's that's quality.
0: Yeah, that that's that's a good line.
1: They're gonna re they're gonna reboot the movie, make it a horror movie, and Roland's gonna be the bad guy who goes around killing people. And the tagline, "Reapings come."
0: I could I could so easily picture Roland with his hat brim low, his guns crisscrossed in front of his face, and his blue eyes peering over the barrel, saying, "Reapings come."
1: And maybe it's a Halloween movie, and we have some stuffy guys in the back with red hands to add a little bit of uh, creepiness to it. Yeah. It works. A couple of cats with forked tails. <laughs> it's all good. Fifth fifth arms. Yeah, it's all good. So what would what would our show be without fart jokes, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> We've got a couple of got them. Got a couple of them in here. <laughs> Thanks, Steven.
0: <laughs> yeah. what What's the one that you had?
1: So the one that I had was early on. Um, when they're destroying the uh, oil patch and setting the sabotage, Cuthbert shouts, giant farts! (laughs) And the hyphen threw me because it's giant hyphen farts. And I was wondering, does Cuthbert mean that the oil smells like a big fart or like the fart of a giant? I mean, we've already seen that there's very odd creatures in Midworld. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a giant. That had gas problems, and maybe it's giant farts as opposed to big farts but- how, how was your read on that? I did spend half a night <laughs> agonizing over
0: the interpretation of the giant dash fart uh comment, but uh yeah, I think I come down on a giant like a person of over overly <laughs> large size laying that person size farts.
1: Very good. Yes. I'm sure that uh, King had to go back and forth with the copy editors at Scribner to figure out, Yeah, they... should we have that hyphen? Should it not be a hyphen? Can you clarify this? But it all works out. There's a lot of uh, cross-outs and stets and... <laughs> <laughs> Keep it in there! That hyphen is necessary for the understanding of the Dark Tower mythos. Exactly. Well,
0: I got a fart-related fun stuff for you. I forget who says the line, but somebody says, quit standing around with thumbs for fart corks. (laughs) And I realized, that's an awesome line. That is just a super awesome way of saying, quit sitting around with your thumb up your ass, doing nothing and being useless. It's you're using your thumb for a fart cork. I got to find a way to bring that into general circulation because that's just brilliant.
1: We'll have plenty of opportunities at work.
0: Yeah, that's certainly work appropriate. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish book 4 of The Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, covering All God's chillin' Got Choose, chapters 1 through 5. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCur. Thanks for listening.